Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. When it comes to introducing Afa Dworkin, my guest today, the big question is where to begin? An accomplished violinist, Afa is a national leader in initiatives to promote diversity in classical music and does so in her role as president and artistic director of the Sphinx Organization, which is prestigious and critically important because it supports a national roster of distinguished musicians of color and reaches more than 2 million through live and broadcast audiences. Its network has grown to more than 60 symphony orchestras. Her commitment to shaping the national classical musical landscape extends beyond Sphinx. We're going to talk more about that in a bit. Born in Moscow and raised in Azerbaijan, Afa's music training began at the prestigious Azerbaijan National Conservatory. As a freshman at the University of Michigan, she joined the Ann Arbor Symphony as a freshman. She earned both her bachelor's and master's degree in violin performance at the school. A recipient of Kennedy Center's Human Spirit Award as well as being named one of Musical America's Top 30 Influencers and Detroit Cranes 40 Under 40, Afa has performed in not only the U.S., but Russia, Switzerland, and Austria. Well, that's going to have to do it for now as far as an introduction goes. So let's meet and get to know this talented, creative mover and shaker, Afa Dworkin. Welcome, and thanks so much for joining me remotely today. It's great to be here, Sandy. I always like to go back to the very beginning with my guests. So Azerbaijan and Moscow, talk to me about growing up and where did music fit into your childhood? Yeah, a great question. And if we dial back all the way to the beginning, my introduction to music was highly unlikely in that I come from uh, a mixed race, multicultural household of wonderful people who had nothing to do with the arts, <laughs> at least directly. <laughs> okay. My mother was a Romance Languages linguist with a concentration in French, uh, which she taught at a college level. And my father, who isn't with us anymore uh, by background, was a chemical engineer. So neither one of my parents were close to the arts, although um, they were certainly patrons of the arts and, and uh, enjoyed classical music as a form of entertainment. Um, so as a young person, amongst other very fortunate things that I had as, as part of my childhood, I had access to excellent music I could hear at any point in time. We grew up with a television set and three television channels, one of which was propaganda news 24 <laughs> 7 right <laughs> the other one was soviet films you know different kind of art and then the third one was classical music you hear the best orchestral music uh, this chamber music just really excellent gems um and from a very very early age i was attracted to the sound of the violin and i remember being around six or so and hearing on television um, music played by the Moscow Virtuosi. And I just fell in love with the sound of the violin, its brilliance and how it carried. And I just watched with this zeal and jealousy almost hmm. um, how these musicians communicated with one another. So I asked my parents if I could study music, which they laughed off politely and thought, <laughs> it's it's so cute. Um, but really, <laughs> we, had to, <laughs> we had to instill some more practical ideals in, in your mind. And music is definitely not. Even as a seven-year-old? <laughs> To instill more practical ideas in a seven-year-old? 
even as a, as a young person, they felt, okay, it's, it's a nice thing, but you're already singing in choir in school and you have access to general music education, which is very good. So we're not so sure you need access to instrumental instruction also. Um, so I kept asking again and again. And after a while, my parents did succumb to all of the cajoling and said they'd take me to, to a community music school. One of the great things back home growing up was that a, a person, a young person living in any district within the city of Baku, the capital of Azerbaijan, could have access to quality music education without regard to their race, culture, zip code, uh, or any other persuasion. And the education was good, it was quality, it was well-rounded, and it was free. So I was taken into a small building uh, right where we lived, and um, there a very nice woman tested my basic ability to hear and sing back a melody and respond to rhythmic structures and said, yeah, I think that'll do. She certainly can study. So I was enrolled in violin lessons and took secondary piano and solfege and, and sang in a choir and the rest is history. And I insisted from a very early age that this was going to be my path. And my parents cautiously encouraged me and certainly were happy to see that I was attracted to music making and worked very hard. But they were the, the caution came from the standpoint of not knowing how practical the right, pathway would right. be and whether mm -hmm. I could survive as a musician. So reluctantly, they allowed me to continue to study until I was in fourth grade. And then on the recommendation of my teachers, um, I actually auditioned for and was admitted to the pre-conservatory track, um, which meant that my life was going to sort of shift pretty dramatically and be oriented toward violin performance and study of music as a profession and and that that was the the early foundation of my love of music why did your family move to azerbaijan it's a great question in the early 90s the country as we knew it uh, the soviet union was dissolving quite literally and figuratively in front of our eyes um, I come from uh, a mixed household where my mother uh, is Azeri and my father was Persian Jewish. So as the Republic was falling apart and declared its independence and the Soviet Union was falling apart, there was a good deal of unrest and uncertainty mm. um, and a fear of anti-Semitic unrests and discrimination and as such a lot of concern that my parents felt for my sister and myself and how we would grow up and the kind of a pathway we could build for for ourselves and and you know and frankly concern for our safety as well and guarantee um, you a good solid future absolutely and the kind of parents my folks were we we definitely came first their children came first so i think the first concern was safety and well-being um, and then on a, on a broader level, philosophically, without a certainty of what, of how the government would change and how the structures would change, I think they felt it would be better for us to relocate. At the time, the conversation about relocation had a temporary temper to it mm. in that there was an intent to return. But the way things happened is that my family ended up returning back to Azerbaijan and I ended up meeting who was to become my violin professor at the University of Michigan here and, and auditioning for the school and staying to study while the rest of my family went home. So my life took an entirely different sort well, of that's uh, trajectory. Crazy. Yeah. In terms of, and I use this 
word often, this Yiddish word meaning beshert, that Mm -hmm. isn't that something that here you are in this country a gazillion miles away from Ann Arbor and who (laughs) falls into your lap? Absolutely. It was an entire, you know, set of circumstances I could never have scripted for myself if I tried. If I wrote scripts, I wouldn't have known where to start. But the way in which these things happen at the time, it certainly was very anxiety-inducing and uncertain. Uh, but in retrospect, in retrospect, it was probably one of the greater blessings in my life to have access uh, to this education and to really build a life here in the States, where I also ended up eventually meeting my, my partner in life and building a family and building my career. So you were how old when you left Azerbaijan on your own? I was 17. Wow. And yeah. you knew nobody and nothing, did you, right? I did not. And on top of that, um, I did not speak the language. I was just going to ask, were you? <laughs> oh, so that, I mean, look at all these obstacles that you overcame. Yeah, what seemed at the time as fairly insurmountable. It just wasn't a chosen language. I spoke a multitude of languages. English was not one of them. Never thought that there would be any practical use for it. I, I found myself here in the Midwest, and it became <laughs> quickly apparent that that needed a change. In fact, my biggest woe at the time was that I was able to audition for the School of Music here, get admitted to the School of Music, but could not gain entrance to the university itself because I kept failing the TOEFL exam, the English exam. I was coming just short. You mean the SATs and such? No. So the SATs weren't as much of a problem because where I couldn't necessarily measure up in reading and writing comprehension, I did okay in math. So my scores were acceptable. Mm -hmm. But the TOEFL language is yet another assessment that all the foreign students need to take in order to just test proficiency in the language. And I could not pull my weight on that one. I had to take it four times Mm -hmm. to get there. And then my very last and final time, a very nice woman here at the Modern Languages Building looked at me and said, honey, you can't come back for six months unless you you pass because it's just, we don't let anyone take this many tests and fail. So I got lucky the fourth time was the charm. I passed with a narrow margin of four points, and there I was (laughs) on my way to the University of Michigan. Well, passing is passing, and that's that's what's the most important thing, whether it's a C, C minus, or C plus, you passed. But let's go to the social part of this. So here you are, a 17-year-old, and you've been to other countries growing up? I've been to other countries, yes. Never to the States, but I've been to other countries, mostly in Central and Eastern Europe and then throughout the Soviet Union. All right. So you had some travel under your belt, but you come to the United States basically solo and cold. I need to know what that was like for you. Well, it was unusual, surprising, and... Scary? uh, Frightening. Yeah, scary. I think... First, as a young person landing in what was Romulus, Michigan, that's where the Detroit airport is. I don't know why, but I had this picture in my mind that um, America was going to look all like Times Square. (laughs) It's just the the image that I had built up in my mind. And even though it was entirely illogical, but landing and and deplaning and coming out and seeing what was Romulus in the middle of summer, um, everything looking gray and brown and not very alive. I was shocked. And I think one of the early um, discoveries on my part was that 
not speaking the language is a real hindrance, not surprisingly. Uh, but the way that folks related to me, not always, but by and large, was really interesting. Because as a musician, I, I had a decent ear. So it wasn't difficult to hear people. It's just that I needed them to slow down to a far, far slower pace. Oh, Americans don't do that. <laughs> no, but, but interestingly, they were trying to help. But as they were trying to help communicating with me, they'd go louder somehow. Thinking <laughs> yes, somehow, yes. if the volume is up, I'll hear. And I, and I would say, no, no, slower. Because mm-hmm. um, I learned a few things. And, and then I think, yet at the same time, I met a few transformative figures early on in my life here in the States. Um, who I think played a pivotal role and encouraged me despite these challenges and help, helped to push me forward, uh, particularly during the times that I felt, you know, quite unsure mm-hmm. about my choice and my choices. I had a wonderful teacher uh, in a high school here where I had, I essentially had plenty of high school credits to not need to go to high school. But because I didn't speak English, I took a bunch of English courses, basic writing and reading. So my ESL, English as a single, uh, second language teacher, was just very wonderful, took an interest in me and, and became a wonderful mentor and helped prepare me for these English tests and for SATs. Um, and, and she encouraged me and said, you know, I, I want you to understand that learning a language at this age is not simple but that there's nothing you can't actually overcome and there's nothing you can't learn. It will take some diligence. And whenever people make fun of you, the accent or, or are so frustrated that you still can't comprehend what they're saying, just take it with grace and essentially ignore it because um, it's not relevant. You just know you have to pass this test and it's, you can't work around it. As a foreigner myself, I'm telling you, you have to learn the language. There's just no way around it. And, and I and others can help you. Um, so I think it's just, Hours on end that became, but but I think her method of encouragement and support, her, her support just meant everything to me. And then uh, the early introduction to the University of Michigan community uh, was critical and pivotal as well in that I found my tribe of hmm. people who didn't care that much that I had a heavy accent and a good deal of words that were misspoken and just generally had difficulty communicating. Um, I think we shared a language and that was the language of music. And I met some wonderful friends who remain lifelong friends and part of my extended family now, 25 years later. Wow. <laughs> and, and that's also where I met my life partner who became a dear friend uh, during my sophomore year in college, and who is the author of the the idea uh, behind the Sphinx organization. So, academics notwithstanding, which were pre- challenging for you, mm-hmm. the social part of your life, while that might have seemed a little uphill, you adapted fairly well to that, to being in, the, in, a, in such a foreign country. Probably took me a year to say that is a fair statement. The first six months are just an entire blur because there was just so much I wasn't understanding. I think once I entered college, I did meet a number of friends and early colleagues and that helped form what was to become the social fabric of my life. And uh, the adaptation then went a lot quicker and building these connections meant everything to me. And I felt that I did belong and, um, you know, eventually beginning to teach while still a student, 
at the university and gaining a spot at the Ann Arbor Symphony here, a regional orchestra as well, I, I began to meet people and, and found the adjustment to be not so jarring anymore. Well, obviously, there's a huge flexibility in who you are and a receptivity mm-hmm. to, to try new things. Did you, and I'm using the term very much in quotes, did you commute between Michigan and Azerbaijan? Well, I'd go home once a year mm-hmm. in the summer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that I had a brief stint, however. So I finished college a little early, my undergraduate degree. Um, I, I had a wonderful experience, and yet sometime during my junior year, I, I felt a bit aimless and slightly disoriented because I think the actual manifestation of my passion for music wasn't exactly connecting with the career path. Um, and, and I wasn't sure what exactly I wanted to do. I wasn't certain I want to go back and get a master's and it seemed like multiple degrees were required to teach in college. I began to, to think that I actually did not want to play in an orchestra full time. Hmm. And as such, I felt also not very challenged in college. And it seemed that a lot was left up, up to me. Um, and I had a kind of, including the fact that I realized it appears I have plenty of credits to graduate early and none of my mentors or advisors were pointing that out until hmm. I was literally staring at my little transcript and like, okay, so what, I mean, I'm so I then went to my, my advisor and he says, no, you're correct. I mean, I think, well, you just, you, you need a few more classes, which meant a very light load during my senior year for just half a semester. And there I was ready to graduate. So interestingly, Having given my recital, having graduated and actually not gone to graduation because it was uh, an opportunity to play a wonderful gig, mm-hmm. I, I found myself aimless, confused, a bit scared, and decided to take a hiatus from violin. Um, by that time, Sphinx was, um, I say all this to say that Sphinx was just burgeoning and I was its first student intern. And I was helping kind of on the side while also teaching a private studio and trying to figure out what I'm doing with my life. So at, at a point in time where it seemed like something wonderful was happening, the birth of Sphinx, I was also confused and felt homesick and um, decided to leave everything as I knew it and just go home. So I flew back and things became much more stable. In fact, um, there was a thriving community of expats in, in Azerbaijan at the time and the oil business was booming. So I literally landed home. I visited with my family and within a week I had a job. What year was this? 1998. Okay. That is, yeah. So I, within a week of coming back home, I interviewed for a job and got a position at an oil and gas company as a, as a what? (laughs) As a synchronic translator from English to Russian. Oh, and that Um, has so much to do with music. (laughs) It had nothing to do with music. I just thought, I I just thought, okay, this would be an easy way to stop wondering what's going to happen to me. In fact, maybe contribute and, and have a fairly easy gig that paid very well for those standards at the time. And, it would give me a chance to to visit with my family, spend time with uh, my aging grandmother, and and really live with my parents. So at first it was wonderful, and it seemed like um, the job didn't ask too much of me. And in fact, several months into it, uh, my my job, my boss at the time, 
very nice man from Texas who <laughs> ran the U.S. <laughs> side of operations there, offered for me to go and get my MBA in Plano, Texas, that oh the company God. was going to pay for. <laughs> um, and he said, you know, I think you have the potential. I understand you love the violin, but you seem to be finding yourself aimless. So why don't you play in the local orchestra there too, but, but choose a profession that's going to pay the rent. Um, so I, I contemplated this whole thing for about two weeks and, and, and vetted it with all my mentors and with my parents. I think my parents liked the idea because it was going to provide for a stability and right, they ultimately right. it was probably good for me to go back to the States. But I also kept in close touch with my mentors back in the States in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, and while my teacher, and I, I always appreciate what he did for me then, he said, I'm not going to make a decision for you. In fact, I'm not going to make a suggestion even of how you could proceed. But what I will say is that if you should choose to return, you have a spot in my studio here. So if you want to come back and get a master's and try try another go at this whole music performance thing, um, there will always be a community for you here. But if you choose not to, always happy to, to stay in touch with you and help in any way that I can. But what I will say is you ought to follow what it is that makes you happy. That no one can determine for you. So I, I slept on it, went back to my bosses back at the oil and gas company, sat them down and said, I appreciate the offer, but I will be resigning and flying back to Romulus, Michigan. <laughs> um, it's calling me. It's calling me, that charm. So I ended up doing that, returning um, to Ann Arbor and finishing my master's and becoming intensively involved with Sphinx again and its early stages. And I um, essentially became this intern that never left, right? I held all these positions at Sphinx, um, ranging from... I want to interrupt you because I want, I want to know, before we get into Sphinx, and I really want to focus on that as well, but here you are, you get a master's. What about performing? Where did that fit in, in your rubric? It had an ebb and a flow to it. I continued to perform actively as part of the Ann Arbor Symphony and Flint Symphony and a number of regional orchestras here. Um, I also did some chamber music performance and I think gave a recital as well, uh, kind of in addition to what was schoolwork. But I was beginning to feel disconnected with that part of myself. It wasn't feeding your soul? It was not. And and I, I think it's more than that. It probably is less new agey than feeding my soul. I think it was also that I began to wonder what good I'm doing by preparing for and performing another concert for which I need to raise audiences and all that stuff. And wondering if my energies and time were spent doing something different with that same time. I wonder if I could do more good. Because what I knew is that there were there was not a lack of uh, talented, poised um, violinists, musicians of all sorts and all ages who were as good, if not much, much better than I was. So in the end, I was wondering my place and the validity of what I was doing and, and frankly, the merits of it as well. Hmm. So I, whereas my early contributions to Sphinx at the same time and my time building something that felt so, so special felt more gratifying and directly reflected me, who, not, who I was, those ideals of equity and equal access. And, and I think the joy it brought me ended up shaping me into someone different. 
So after a while, I ended up making a difficult decision. And I've always loved teaching, always. I continue to enjoy it greatly in a completely different capacity now. My role as adjunct at Roosevelt University. I've always loved that aspect of my portfolio career. But eventually, I think this is now, I want to say year 2002 or maybe 2001, I ended up giving up the teaching piece as well. Because by that time, my life at Sphinx was all-consuming, and it felt like there was a lot I could do by way of contributing of my time and expertise, and it was going to be more useful and more important and more gratifying. So talk about the birth of Sphinx. I have to confess that I was unfamiliar with this organization, despite how potent it is. Talk about its birth and your connection to it. Sure. So Sphinx was a, a brainchild of um, Aaron Dworkin, uh, a biracial violinist whom I met during my sophomore year in college here at the university. He was a transfer student. Um, so I met when he entered our studio and we ended up chatting about his own upbringing and uh, things he was interested in and became friends. So early on in that connection, he shared with me um, an idea something that's been on his mind, and that is that he, he appears to be and often found himself to be the only person of color playing the violin, or at best, maybe less than, you know, one of less than a handful if he's lucky. And that it's been a troubling thought ever since he was a teenager, and he was really contemplating doing something about it. So I, I giggled and laughed it up, and I said, what, what will you do about it, really? Isn't classical music and its performance and its study entirely based on meritocracy. So if that is the case, how on earth do you heal something that isn't broken? What, how could you force young people like yourself to play the instrument and get involved if it isn't, if it isn't otherwise forbidden? So I'm not sure how you really shift this paradigm. Because I come, of course, from a background where Things are a lot more about conformity, unity, solidarity. We're all one of one people and access to classical music was definitely not a classist kind of a thing. It was not a perk of the riches. Everyone and anyone could study. And in fact, most parents believed that kids should study instrumental music. Um, doesn't matter their cultural background. It's just a good part of their overall development. So I was just kind of shocked to find that there's there's a disparity. But then yet going on stage as, as a student, I began to actually see that he was right. I barely saw anyone of color. Mm. And we continued our conversations. And he said, well, when was the last time you studied a concerto, say by a black composer? Can you think of any? And I was a new music buff and a repertoire fanatic, junkie. And I couldn't think of any. So I said, why wasn't this part of my upbringing? Why don't I know any? It can't be that that's the case. So almost defensively, I would say to him, well, what about Scott Joplin or Duke uh -huh. Ellington? I mean, uh -huh. it's got to be. And uh -huh. he says, yes, I'm sure there are. And, and when I'm talking, I'm, I'm talking about folks who wrote serious classical music literature. When was the last time you knew of any or studied? So that kind of, it began to, to plant a seed in my mind. and by an odd set of circumstances, I, I still was skeptical in that I thought it was a wonderful idea. It was going to address a social issue. It was going to introduce young people at the time, I thought, to the art form that I adore and that's changed my life. I still didn't see how feasible it was going to be. I couldn't figure out who was going to fund this and how it was going to become a thing, a project, until 
year 1998, when I met the first cohort of young musicians, young Black and Latino string musicians, who were competitively selected to come and perform in Ann Arbor and compete for prizes and scholarships and instruments. And I was blown away. I got to hear them, not only as a friend, but also I was a member of the Ann Arbor Symphony, which was at the time the accompanying orchestra for the Sphinx competition. And I was blown away by the level uh, how poised these young people were, how well prepared, and at the level at which they played was comparable to any competition that I've been a part of. So in other words, and, and beyond that, there were 12 selected, and I knew that 12 more could have been easily selected if there was room. It's just the way the competition was structured. So I was just, I was so touched and moved by it, and probably the most impactful thing that happened um, that year was hearing from one of the parents backstage who's in tears, um, hearing her say, I, I was so certain that my daughter was going to win this competition because in our town, she's the only um, kid of color that plays the violin. So we were certain that if this is a competition to uplift the talent of color, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that there, weren't, there wasn't anyone else at this level. But she was pleased and grateful that in fact, that isn't the case. And what her daughter found was so much more than just the prize money, because what she found was community. So I, I was, was just really, going to say, mm-hmm. there's nothing like that. That is what, what, that was the Sphinx bug for me. I felt that this was a movement. It was a family that was beginning to build and form itself. And the feeling that I had being a part of building that and helping from the um, kind of witnessing a birth of something that felt so viscerally important. I, I went to my friend uh, who was later to become uh, my life partner. And I said, listen, if there are things I can do for you to help build what you're building, I would love to. I was wrong. I, I mean, I was a skeptic. I really didn't see a, a reason to, to do this as a separate program. And now I think you absolutely ought to. You know, I want to pick up on your word, um, on your verb about birth. Who actually gave birth to the Sphinx organization? It was Aaron Dworkin. It was, it was your partner. It was Aaron. Yes. He pulled all this together. Absolutely. As a student, as an undergraduate transfer student from Penn State, he was like, he, this was his, his, his baby. Yeah. So here's the interesting dynamic, just to go off. So here you two live together. And basically what I'm getting out of this is that apparently the two of you could power a city in a blackout. <laughs> That I'm not sure, but we could move a lot of we can move a lot of mountains together. <laughs> Sphinx becomes his child, and he mm-hmm. manages to get sponsors, backers, benefactors to mm-hmm. make this more universal, more nationwide. Even though it was born in Michigan, one of the amazing things that Aaron has as part of his talent is he, well, first he's a serial entrepreneur. Um, he is, is known for birthing ideas and not being afraid if one doesn't work out and moving on to the next. Sphinx was something that I know was really important to him. So one of the talents he has is looking at a problem, deciding what to do about it, and then persuading others to, um, to really believe in it as well. So the case this young person had to make as, as, as a 20-something-year-old he had to convince the philanthropic community here in the States that this was a worthwhile initiative that was not a special project, but it was an actual nonprofit organization that needed sustenance. And it is something that had to get institutionalized and they had to get behind it. 
Um, so when I reflect on what that is and how that is to, to do that in your 20s, it's something I've never seen in another. Um, and he did that consistently year after year. He, he led Sphinx for nearly 20 years. It was 18 years until um, he transitioned away uh, from Sphinx. But, but part of his ability was to bring on about 100 partners uh, that, who ranged from music schools to conservatories uh, to orchestras, presenting house and houses, and, and so many artist advocates who really advised early on and helped shape what Sphinx was going to become, but also the philanthropic community, um, the major foundations and corporations who needed to hear about this. And this is in an age where equity, diversity, and inclusion were not part of anyone's vocabulary, certainly not part of mine as a, as a mm. foreigner, mm. But, but no foundations were talking about the importance of diversity. In fact, we had to sort of make the case for Sphinx as something that was just the right thing to do. And it's interesting to see now how the, the dialogue has shifted so much. And um, now DEI and EDI and EDIB becomes this almost part of the vernacular in the field. So I reflect back and, and almost chuckle uh, when I say, okay, but as a 20-year-old founder of this thing, Aaron had to tell them this was valid. And, and yes, the child is the father of the man, clearly, yeah. in, mm-hmm. in an endeavor like this. For example, the Philharmonic conducts blind auditions. So it's a yes and no. And blind auditions in this country are much of a, they're a misnomer in that only very few orchestras, I only know of one or two in the country, uh, truly conduct blind auditions from the beginning to the end, meaning they do not get rid of the screen at all throughout the process. I think the vast majority of orchestras, however, do first screen the auditionees and then put folks they have already pre-selected behind the screen and then the screen comes down actually at the end um, past a certain point when you get to meet the person and, and begin to get to know them. I think in many ways this topic has become that it's become um, a hot button issue not without its controversy um, with lots of opinions out there that range from Blind auditions haven't done anything for diversity, get rid of this thing, or there are no truly blind auditions. So as such, you need to try them and and really make them entirely blind and see how that happens for us. Plays out, no pun intended. Yeah. And ultimately, of course, my my belief is is a bit of a hybrid in that it's true. We don't have truly blind auditions, but I do think that truly blind auditions are but one step in being able to assess a musician of the 21st century who would enter uh, a musical collective such as an orchestra of the 21st century. And I don't think it's a sufficient way in which to assess someone's fitness or readiness to mm-hmm. join. Um, I think other things need to also be measured, such as um, effectiveness of the musician as a spokesperson to the community, a teaching artist, someone who would preach the gospel of orchestral music out there. And an ambassador. A, yeah, an ambassador in many ways. And I think those things need to be assessed uh, in a different way and as part of the variety of complex criteria um, for some of which orchestras ought to be investing their own resources in identifying experts who will help them measure those elements of fitness of a musician. In the introduction, I mentioned that your commitment goes 
beyond Sphinx. And I want you to talk about what else that is that you do. Well, I think Sphinx is the primary creative vehicle through which my commitment to equity and inclusion really um, is expressed. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. It's just that I, I see Sphinx as not only a movement, really, because it is now... Uh, we are about 800 strong through all of our alumni of various programs who have been around for almost 25 years. Um, I think our alumni and artists and leaders are now the best ambassadors for Sphinx's mission and its greater implications. I think we're stronger in numbers because um, through the work of others, um, the ultimate result has a, you know, a better, more feasible chance of being achieved. One of the ways in which I try to convince the world that this is still critically important, in fact, now more than ever, is through my speaking engagements and and advising and helping to partner with organizations and individuals who are trying to build more work in this sphere. And then in another way, I also teach at Roosevelt University as part of their arts leadership, uh, a master's in arts leadership program. So my hope there is to help contribute to the development of leaders of tomorrow uh, who can hopefully see this piece on equity and inclusion as something that's essential and help shape the landscape of what our field's going to look like tomorrow. What is it that you haven't done that you want to do in terms of your mission and, and Aaron's mission as well? Do you work in tandem with each other? We don't as much anymore. Aaron remains involved on kind of big picture strategic advisement level. We're lucky mm-hmm. to obviously share a life. And as such, um, as a founder, he's still involved in on that peripheral level, particularly as we build new programs and explore new partnerships. Uh, but he also is a full-time professor here at the University of Michigan at our alma mater, um, professor of arts leadership and entrepreneurship, and he's a practicing artist, uh, both spoken word and visual and written, and he runs his own show as well as a podcast. So he stays rather busy, even without the day-to-day work of Sphinx. So I've assumed ultimate leadership of Sphinx almost six years ago, five and a half years ago, when he transitioned to serve as the dean here at, at the School of Music. Um, the work that I've been able to do with my team and our, and our artists has been gratifying and transformative in terms of wanting to do more is I want to continue to advocate more strongly and more effectively to a point where every major organization from the Philharmonic to um, every conservatory and music school in the country to a point where they make diversity and inclusion their core priority. A natural act, huh? A natural act, not because it is some way to repair the past and some way to do what should have been done a long time ago. I think that can be an aspect. But to me, it is also because it's time for us to evolve our definition of artistic excellence and, mm. uh, and, and understand that when we're talking about diversity, we're talking about elevating merit and not sacrificing it. I need the, the mainstream institutions to help change that the fallacy, the silly uh, idea that some in our field still continue to have, that somehow when we talk about equity and inclusion, we need to be prepared to sacrifice the quality, do away with artistic merit, and, and agree to kind of value different things. I think what we need to understand is that excellence is impossible without relevance and can't be relevant if we're not representative. So as such, 
we should do it for the love of the art form too. Uh, if we care for the art form to survive and thrive, we should actively engage the voices that have been systemically and systematically excluded for generations. Um, if we want to enrich and rehabilitate this art form and make it play a role in today's digital world, then, then uh, you know, I want the main institutions to champion this work and I talk about it in many essays and interviews. I say this means a few different things. I say this means commit a percentage of your operating budgets every year for the next 10 years to these issues, something like 15% to start with. Um, you know, commit to performing all public-facing performances should have a percentage of work by, to, to be by uh, non-dead white composers. <laughs> you know, and I say it would really be great to see something like a quarter of what we take on stage to not be by, you know, dead white guys. There is so much incredible music and it's definitely not a matter of a lack of access or resources. It is readily available. It's readily apparent. And I think it's time that we study it, we perform it, and that we change the canon once and for all. So our kids and their kids can have a better picture of how rich this art form really is. Are you optimistic? I am optimistic by nature. I also think um, that if we continue to advocate from a standpoint of not shaming, but encouraging, mm. insisting, mm. partnering, cajoling when I have to, um, but leading by example, working together, I think, I think we can't help but, but be on a precipice of something that's so important and transformative. And I think once it starts and once maybe a handful of institutions set in new examples, the rest of the world will follow. I, I, I definitely believe that. You know what my takeaway is from you? <laughs> that you could sell ice in winter. <laughs> I mean that. Oh, that's very kind. Tell me, do you and your husband play? It's really rare. I, I get to play a bit more piano than I do violin um, anymore. But our youngest is still actively studying piano. So I get to sometimes work with him and collaborate with him. And that's very rewarding. Um, I wouldn't take it publicly, but I, <laughs> it's definitely a very enjoyable thing. I think my artistic outlet is the privilege of programming um, at Sphinx and programming all of our artistic concerts and, and tours and themes and as such working kind of on the content from the creative standpoint that that becomes my been doing most things now virtually and these we continue to do it in fact i this the optimism piece for me is really essential we've been able to quadruple the reach of our orchestral training initiative we've held all of our educational programs online and we just completed a virtual gala which uh, was entitled lift every voice and it had several new compositions that we just commissioned this summer and produced with about 67 musicians so i i refuse to stop it just has to look different and i think one of the reasons we can't afford to stop is we can't afford to stop supporting our artists they're the ones who are gonna rescue all of us so we have to do whatever it takes to give them work and give them a platform for their voices to be heard it's, it's a difficult time Alpha. Allow me to gush. What an honor and a privilege to get to meet and have a conversation with you. I honestly certainly did some of my research, but it's one thing to read about you. And it's another thing to look at you and hear you speak. It's just really, it's so empowering and so 
positive. What a what a dynamo, really. I'm I I say this often because it's true. Who's luckier than I am to meet all these fabulous women? And you've got it in spades. <laughs> oh, thank you. That is so kind, Sandy. It's it's definitely my my honor and a pleasure. And I do what I do because of the amazing tribe I have. So it's My my family keeps it moving forward. (laughs) Obviously, leadership means a lot from way back when, six and seven, thousands and thousands of miles away. And here, we're so grateful that you are now here and doing what you do. It's really wonderful. I extend to you another invitation. If there's anything that's going on that you would like to share, we'd love to have you back. Absolutely. We'll do for sure. Thank you so much, Sandy. Afa Dworkin, thank you so much for sharing your life with us. And I think what better way to end than to have a sample of the talent from the Sphinx organization. Sit back and enjoy. Thank you. 